everyone. Welcome to Relinquish Podcast. My name is Travis. I'm Christina. Hey. Hey. Hey, can I say something real quick? Say something real quick. Your hair looks good. My hair looks good. Your <laughs> yeah. face looks good. Oh, look, thank you. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, this is going to be our third episode on the topic of addiction and recovery. And it's not a part of our typical controversial topics format. Instead, it's more of an ongoing discussion around addiction and recovery from addiction. Yes. So if you're looking for our controversial discussions, check out our other episodes that do not have the name Addiction or Recovery in the title of it. And if you have not listened to any of our previous recovery episodes, that's all right. To catch you up, my wife and I have a passion for educating the public about addictions and ways to recover from it. I am in recovery from a severe and debilitating addiction to alcohol, and throughout my time in sobriety, I have been immersed in the world of addicts and recovery, and I want to bring that world to you. Odds are, you know someone who, is, who has some form of life-altering addiction. A fantastic online resource for anything related to addiction is the website addictionguide.com. Now, this is a phenomenal site offering resources and information about addiction and recovery, if you feel overwhelmed by the world of addiction, like if you're just getting into it, you don't know where to start, uh, this is a great place to start, addictionguide.com. It's also a great place to end. I mean, they have everything you need. It's, you know, it's not just a beginner's website. It's, it's got everything. I can't recommend it enough, and I'll put a link to that website in the show notes So for your viewing pleasures. Right, so uh, moving on. What are we going to get into today? Moving on. Today, today we're going to be discussing just a little light topic, the drug fentanyl. Mm. That's a big one. It is. It's a big problem these days. Um, well, how about we start with the question, what is fentanyl? Exactly. What is fentanyl? Like, ugh. Yes. Um, it's a synthetic opioid. It's about a hundred times more potent than morphine and 50 times more potent than heroin and i consider morphine and heroin pretty potent yeah i, I thought mo uh, morphine i thought mor- <laughs> i thought morphine morphine was pretty strong like I, yeah. like to me that's the that's next level that's next level so all right well let's let's talk about fentanyl the it was first created in 1959 by dr paul jansen Jansen. <laughs> Jansen. <laughs> it was first created. It was first created in 1959 by Dr. Paul Jansen. <laughs> Jan- that's good old Jansen boy. It was first created in 1959 by Dr. Paul Jansen for the use of an anesthetic. That's a hard word to say. It came. <laughs> we stop it. It came into the market for pharmaceutical use by the late 1960s. Its original purpose is to treat pain related to surgeries and cancer patients, since it is very fast acting and the duration of its effects are shorter than morphine. Mm, okay. Yeah. Pain. pain. We're gonna be talking about that. Yeah. So legal medicinal fentanyl, is it fentanyl or fentanyl? It's tomato, tomato. I I say fentanyl. I say fentanyl because it's pronounced, it's spelled that way. Okay, well, Anyway, I'm a Texas boy. This drug, this fentanyl, can be delivered intravenously 
um, through a patch or in a lozenge. If you obtain it illegally or if you make it, it starts as a liquid or a powder. On the streets, it's often added to other street-made drugs, especially pills like Oxycontin, Vicodin, Morphine, and even Adderall. And unfortunately, these days, a lot of people are overdosing on it. You've probably seen that in the news. Right. So speaking about overdosing, let's get into some of those stats. Um, At the end of 2015, the total number of drug overdoses in the U.S. was close to 53,000. So that's in total. Like of all drugs. Of all drugs. 62% of those were from opioids. And of those opioids, about 30% were synthetic, like fentanyl. So kind of pare those numbers down. In total, about 18% of the total overdose deaths were from drugs like fentanyl. So that's back in 2015. 18%. At the end of 2021, the total number of drug overdoses in the U.S. was about 107,000. It's like double. That's double. Now, 76% of those were from opioids. Of those opioids, 88% were from fentanyl. So in total, approximately 66% of the total number of overdose deaths in 2021 were from fentanyl. Now that's a significant increase. That is a significant increase. So if we kind of pare it down, if we kind of get into a little bit more specifics, in 2015, approximately 9,600 deaths were from fentanyl. And in 2021... Approximately 71,000 deaths were from fentanyl. That's a 640% increase. So basically, fentanyl is becoming quite popular. Yes. I would say it's really becoming an epidemic of massive proportions. That's why we really want to talk about it today, because we're seeing it a lot in the news. We don't even watch the news. Like, we don't even have a TV. And we still see it a lot in the news. And we still see it. This news that we don't watch, we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing it everywhere. People are sending us uh, articles. People are telling us, hey, this is going on. And so I wanted to do an episode on it and talk about it. Well, it's an interesting topic because there was already an opioid epidemic, as far as I know. And this is really before fentanyl was up and coming. Right. This is just taking it next level. And so one of the things I did to kind of prepare for this episode is I... Besides watch the news. Besides <laughs> not watch the news. Is I read a book. You read a book? Yeah. I read a book. A book. Yeah. That was titled Fentanyl, Inc. And it was by a, a journalist named Ben Westhoff. And that gave me some perspective about fentanyl and the history of it. So if you really want to deep dive into fentanyl, I highly recommend this book. Your public library probably has a copy of it. That's how I got mine. So it's not like you have to go buy it. And um, yeah, read it. Get some information about it. So let's first start with legitimate uses for fentanyl. Because we, you and I tend to be leaning more on the scale of less drugs is better. Less legal drugs for treating things are better. But there is a need sometimes for medicinal legal uses of strong, what are these called? What kind of medication is this? Like a painkiller? Yeah, a painkiller. Anesthetic? Anesthetic, yeah. (laughs) Words are hard. Words are hard for me. Let's talk about legitimate uses. What would be some legitimate uses in a hospital or even a home setting for 
something so strong as fentanyl. Okay, so you had said earlier that originally it was to treat pain that was related to surgery or for cancer patients because it's fast acting Mm -hmm. and it it has, I guess, a shorter half-life so it gets out of your system quicker than morphine, which is great. So I'm assuming if that was the original need for it, possibly it's still being used for that? Yes, it is. And... Mainly for in cancer patients. Yeah. Um, specifically, like cancers that are causing extreme amounts of pain where morphine really isn't helping. And it's, it's morphine is causing too much, I guess. The side effects of the morphine are too much, I guess. And so they, they give fentanyl instead. So it has less side effects. Well, not allegedly. Not I'm just saying, like, my logical brain is thinking. You would use a drug that's fast-acting and doesn't last as long mm-hmm. um, rather than something like morphine, which, you know, your drowsiness and mm. the lethargic stuff that you're going to have after taking it probably lasts longer. So your come down, that is going to be longer and maybe not as pleasant if, well, you're, if you're having to take it a bunch. I would assume in a medical setting, they have way more control over dosage and how much you're getting over what period of time and all of those things are very controlled. Regimented and yes. controlled. Well, we would hope so. We would hope so. Yeah. We're going to assume, yes. Okay. So th- I think those are some pretty good legitimate reasons for using a drug, such a highly controlled substance and such a powerful substance. So, all right, well... What about illegal uses of it? Like, what about them? Are they legitimate? Is that what <laughs> no. we're talking about? What? My answer is no. No. Okay. <laughs> a big N and a big O. Nay. Right. Well, I guess we'll get into it later, but about why people are choosing the fentanyl route rather than sure. other stuff. But Well, let's just talk about where it comes from. Okay. Where does fentanyl come from? Well, I mean, here in the States... For legal purposes, it's made. It's a, it's a synthetically created drug. So it's not... Which means people are making it in their bathtub or some kind of home lab? No, no, no. I mean, first, legally... Oh, yeah, legally. Pe- people are making it in a lab. But illegally, you know, it's illegal to make it here within, unless you're a company that has been licensed to do so. So to make it illegally, you need... I'm assuming several different chemical components and maybe machines that are accessible to in order to produce it. So people generally don't do that here because it raises alarms and flags within our government system if you're buying these particular very specific, I'm sure. Yeah, components. Well, and I'm sure most of our listeners, I almost said readers, you could read the transcript of this nowhere. Anyway, um, (laughs) I'm assuming most of you guys know when we say it's a synthetic opioid, synthetic means man-made, like it's not found in nature. So morphine and heroin, those are found in nature, or they can be. Heroin is produced from opium, from nature, yes. Okay. Well, so is fentanyl. Fentanyl is an opioid. It's but it's a synthetic opioid. Sure. So I just wanted to make that distinction. Like if it's being made in a lab yeah. in that way with chemicals, it's not based. It's it's copied. It's copied yeah, it's from the copy. natural opium. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It's right. synthetic. It's synthetic. 
Okay. I just wanted to kind of clarify that for myself and anybody else who was like, oh, okay. So here in America, we have a big drug problem. People are overdosing. People are taking lots of drugs and opioids in particular are becoming, or it's just really bad. Now, fentanyl, as we just read in those stats, is really kind of leading the path. In but it's not, you said, made here, mostly. It's not made here. People who are getting it here, it's not a, an American-made thing. Where is so, it coming from? So it's coming from Mexico, and it's coming from China and India. Hmm. So it's a very complex network of drug smuggling and drug producing outside of the U.S. that is going on. So we'll start with China. China is one of the main producers of the analogs or the, the things that go into making fentanyl, into producing it. So they produce many of the chemical components and other necessities in order to create fentanyl. They produce that and sell that to any buyer. And the laws in China regarding are revolving around the production of such things. Even fentanyl, China will produce fentanyl as a whole and ship it out. The laws there are very laxed. And so as long as it's making money, they don't really care. Wow. When you said the laws in China are lax, like that was some cognitive dissonance for me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And then you've got India, who is, I would say, the second largest producer of it. And many of it is actually coming, many of their stuff is coming from China. So China will sell to India. It's one of its biggest customers. India will take a lot of the stuff, package it up, and send it over to Mexico. And the drug cartels in Mexico, for, I'd say, a few years, they were, take, they were buying the components to make fentanyl. And they were making fentanyl there in the country of Mexico, and then smuggling it into the U.S. I think it's so interesting that China and India, I have no idea about supply chain for drugs in general, so it could be similar for other drugs, I don't know. But those are like the two most populous places in the world, so Mm -hmm. it's interesting that that's where this is being made. Yeah. But I guess maybe they have less demand for it, or they're making enough of it that they can fill their demand and ours. Right. I don't know what the demand is in other countries, but America has the highest demand for drugs in the entire world. That's all kinds of drugs, right? Pharmaceutical drugs. All kinds of drugs. We are the we are the most drugged country in the entire world. And if you disagree, count how many prescriptions you have. If the number's not zero, we rest our case. Well, if you disagree, I and and you, we're open to that. Why don't you send me some information? I'm not. I'm not even citing any sources for me saying we're the heaviest drugged com- uh, country out there, other than check our gun episode. I, I mentioned some stats back then. So, but I would say that we are the most prescribed prescription and drug illegal drug using country in the world, which we're going to talk about, but not yet, right? Yeah, per capita, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get into that. But I want to talk about getting fentanyl into the United States. Okay. So Mexico will buy the components, the drug cartels, I should say, and the way that they get it into Mexico, because they have to smuggle it into Mexico, they're really good, but Mexico is a, very, is a third world country. They, 
Are they not? I would consider them a third world country. I don't know, but I'm offended by that. Okay. <laughs> Maybe a second world? I have no idea. I think those are antiquated terms. Maybe they are. The anthropologist anyway. in me says no. Okay. Well, anyway, they there's a lot of corruption in the government. Sure, sure. And so getting it in, I've, I've watched some <laughs> We again. don't have any of that in our country. No, no, no corruption here. Um, we're just better at covering it up. The um, I watched some really great documentaries about how the drugs for fentanyl are smuggled in to Mexico. And um, so the Mexican cartels, they will take the stuff, create the powder of fentanyl. And then what they do is they either, depending on who they're selling it to, so they'll once they've created fentanyl, they will do several different things with it. They'll take some of it and uh, mix it with other uh, drugs that they're copying. So they'll copy Xanax and uh, what are some of those? Like Adderall? Valium? No, they won't put in Adderall. They'll, what are some of the ones? Like, um, like benzos? Oxycontin. Oh. Like oxycodone, hydrocodone, oxy, oxycontin, that kind of stuff. They copy those, so they'll make their own versions of those. And they will add fentanyl into it to make them, you know, potent and more addictive. And so they'll some of the fentanyl they make goes into those drugs that they're producing. They through their pill mills, they'll they'll punch the pills out to make them look just like the prescription pills. And then they'll send those in bags uh, with drug smugglers into the country. They also will just take the powder of pure fentanyl and sell that to certain buyers in the country, in, in the U.S., where the buyers in the U.S., are, or it might be another part of their organization that is um, located in the U.S., will take that fentanyl, pure fentanyl, and then uh, sell it to people in the U.S. And they mix it into the drugs they're making here. Yeah. <clears throat> or just straight up. Okay. So that's... you. you. So... My concern is, you know, these things are getting across our border really relatively easily. and Which like, seems like that's the case for a lot of drugs, yes? Yes. That's the case for a lot of drugs. They, the primary entry spot into our country is through Mexico, the Mexican border. Very, we do get some coming through Canada, but most of it comes from Mexico. I'm not saying anything against Mexico. So do you think something can be done about this? Is that... Oh, yeah, I think something can be done about it. Other countries do lots to prevent drugs and other such mm, contraband from coming into their countries, I think. But, look, I'm not a politician. I don't know much about foreign policy. I don't know a whole lot about the border stuff going on, and I'm not against Sure, sure. Immigration or anything. So that you kind of don't stuff. have all the solutions I don't to have our any problems. Solutions. Is what you're saying. What I see is we have a problem, and whatever we're currently doing, obviously isn't working. If we've got seventy-one thousand deaths from 2021 from this illegal substance, six hundred and forty percent increase. Increase from 2015. So my my, if I, if I were a politician, this is how I would think. Okay, you with me? You had me until you said politician, actually, <laughs> okay. and then I left you. But so, okay, I'm with you. So I want, I want. This is for the audience' sake. I, if I were a politician, the way I would think is, okay, we have a problem with 
we have a drug problem with people overdosing on this drug. And, okay, it's coming through the border, so we have a border crisis problem where drugs are being smuggled in. As a politician, I'd say, well, we need to just shut down the border, or we need to have stricter laws, which, yeah, I think we do. Hmm. But much Hmm. like the other topics that we talk about in our controversial series— if you're just if you just try to legislate your way out of this, yeah, that's not nothing is going to happen. Not a solution. Not. So a callback to our abortion episode, when we did the episode on abortion, you can't legalize or or make it illegal. It's not going to change the underlying issue. So, so if you're someone who's against abortion, which we are. You know, just throwing it out there. Yeah, we're just mm. outed. We outed. Oh, yeah, it's in our episode. But Maybe they haven't listened to that episode. Well, then go listen to it. Well, you just spoiled it. No, it's not. Okay. Anyway, if you're someone who's against it, making a law to prevent it isn't going to change, isn't going to stop people from doing it. I wholeheartedly agree. Right. So that's not the solution. No. So that's So what, you do have the solutions. I do have some solutions, <laughs> yes. I knew you secretly had solutions. Basically, you know what's not the solution. I know what not the solution is. I know what's not. Mm. I know what not the solution is. I know what not the solution is. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm pretty sure the politicians (laughs) know not what the solution is as well. I'm pretty sure, too. I'm pretty sure people are very confident about what is not the solution. Right. Okay. Well, Well, first of all, fentanyl is extremely dangerous. I agree. Yes. What makes it so dangerous? Yeah, why is it? I mean, is it more dangerous than morphine or heroin? I would think if it was, what were those numbers we had earlier? Yeah, it is more dangerous. If it was 100 times more potent than morphine and 50 times more potent than heroin, that sounds dangerous. Very dangerous. The word potent sounds dangerous to me. (laughs) So according to the DEA, two milligrams of fentanyl is lethal to a human being. So give us a comparison. So if you're looking at a penny. Okay. Um, just kind of think of about a little bit of dust on that penny. Like a speck? No, like a little, just like a little pile of dust on a penny. Like when Horton hears a who? I don't know what that is. <gasps> Dr. Seuss. Well, I like Dr. Seuss. I don't know the Horton. Well, he has a little like dandelion or thistle or something. And there's a little creature called a who that lives on it. And he hears it. Okay. Is that little creature like <laughs> fentanyl? I guess, sure. Like two milligrams? Look, you could, you could go to the DEA website and they have a little picture. <laughs> okay. It's got a little penny on it. It's got a little bit of powder. For you visual learners. Next to like, the penny. I appreciate that. It, Thank you. It is an extremely small amount. Like if, if you, just like a little bit of flour. Like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, fa- you're I'm, failing I'm here. I'm failing here. Okay. Just go look at the picture. So it's extremely potent. It's extremely addictive. A little goes a long way. It's very addictive. So if it's so dangerous... Why are people taking it? Why are people doing it? And wouldn't the dealers not want to kill their customers because people are dying from it? That's a really good question. Because at first when you said, why are people taking it? I was thinking, well, it's readily available. I'm assuming it's less expensive than morphine or heroin because of this potency thing and availability. And like, just seems like there's a lot of factors where it's just all over the place and you can't get away from it. But yeah, I mean, if you're going to die when you take it, like why would drug dealers want that? Well, that's a great question. That's a question I asked 
myself and other people are asking too. And people have already answered it. There's answers out there for that. And I might get this wrong, but um, from my understanding, well, let's. To, I think to get an understanding of that, let's backtrack a little bit and talk about the other drugs that people are taking and why they take them, because it's a it's led up to this fentanyl usage. Okay. So many of you out there who are in the recovery world will be aware of this evolution of drug use for somebody who has an addiction to opioids. And that is, you get some kind of injury and you go to the doctor and they give you a prescription for pain medicine to manage your pain. If you want a really good history of this, please read the book um, Dope Sick. It goes into the history of the pharmaceutical company Purdue, who first started manufacturing Oxycontin, which was highly addictive, but they said it wasn't. Because of that pharmaceutical company, they spent a lot of time changing the view of pain within the medical system to become what they call the fifth vital sign. And so mm -hmm. when you go to the doctor's office, you, when they ask you to rate your pain, they're going to give you this scale of one to 10. Well, this came from Purdue's big efforts to make pain the fifth vital sign so that it can be now something that can be managed and pain mm -hmm. has to be managed. And so as a result of that, you got all these people creating pill mills and pain management clinics to be able to highly prescribe all these different pain medicines to people who have pain. Well, and pain is also an epidemic. Pain is an epidemic. I want to get into in just a minute. Okay. We're going to talk about that. That's where I think the, ma the majority of this conversation is going to go to. So hold that thought. I'm holding it. Okay. So you've got somebody that goes into the doctor's office because they have an injury. The doctor gives them even just a mild pain pill, but it's an opioid. Now these opioids are highly addictive. And so they'll start taking them to manage that pain. Well, the pain doesn't go away because maybe it's a severe uh, injury or something. So they have to get a refill. And the next thing you know, this person now is getting addicted to this pain pill. Which we would call dependent. They're becoming dependent. They're becoming dependent, yes. Now, coming off of these pain meds, um, like detoxing from them, is extremely hurtful. Like it hurts your body. You get what's called dope sick. You, you go through this massive withdrawal process if you start taking them for too long. So now you start to, the, the person starts to look for these pain pills. They're not able to get them from their doctor anymore because a doctor won't over prescribe these things, which is great. And they're having to get them on the streets. So they're having to find drug dealers that sell these pills because now they're dependent on these pills for their health. Well, that gets very expensive because the street value for Oxycontin and those other types of uh, opioids are very expensive. What's not expensive? Heroin. Mm. And so you, you have this evolution from someone who goes from these pain pills. They can no longer afford that habit. And so they end up going to heroin. <clears throat> heroin is extremely cheap. It's very abundant. It's easy to get. And the high is stronger. And so they'll start doing that. Then... So that's where we, we are, that's where we were before fentanyl really hit the streets, is we were having people going from 
a pharmaceutical pain management pill to heroin because of a supply and demand type of situation where they just did not have the funds to buy the pills. And there has been a shift because pharmaceutical companies have been sued because of this, because so many deaths were happening, so many addictions were happening. And there's been a shift in the medical industry for doctors to prescribe those things less, mainly through threat of litigation, I think. And Which creates the more illegal activity. Right. And there's been a lot of education to medical providers. However, mm-hmm. I think most listeners will agree it would be so easy to go to the doctor and get a prescription for an opioid. No problem. Right. Because they're taught this is how you manage pain. That's their go-to. Well, and it's their go-to for a reason, because there aren't a lot of options when it comes to managing pain, pharmaceutically speaking. Pharmaceutically speaking, or what the insurance will pay for. Well, that's a whole (laughs) other episode. Oh, boy. We're opening up a can. So that's the sort of evolution that we've had up until a few years ago. 2015-ish. 2015-ish, yeah. So now you've got fentanyl. And fentanyl being inserted into these other pills that people are trying to get on the street or just straight up powder. They'll mix it with other heroin maybe or something else. It is producing a much quicker high. The high doesn't last as long, which I don't know if there's a benefit to that or not, but it's, and it's so extremely addictive. Once people start taking it, they start looking for it again. And when you become an addict on heroin, from when you, when you get down to heroin, you're just chasing that dope sick. You're not like you're you're, you're looking for that feel good feeling, but you're never going to get that first time hit, like rush. Right. And so you're you're chasing that, but you're also desperate not to get dope sick. And so when you start hearing about a new drug or a drug that's going to give you that high that you had the first time as well as prevent you from being dope sick, you're going to be going for it. Even if there is a threat to kill your life, now you, you have to think like an addict. An addict is not thinking, oh, this is bad for me. They're thinking, I have to have this, I must have this, or I'm going to die. Right. And well, so... And this is assuming once you start taking it that you survive the first... Like so many kids mm-hmm. are only taking it once and the very first time they take it, they're dying. Which is why a lot of school districts and organizations and institutions in our country are now carrying Narcan because Mm -hmm. that is as if someone's heart stops because of an opioid overdose, you could administer Narcan and that increases their chances of survival by a lot. So that's something that you can actually buy over the counter and is from what I understand and you Mm -hmm. can have it like in the trunk of your car or I don't even know. I don't know all the details of that. But if you are in relationship with someone who is doing opioids, that might be something for you to look into. That's a really good suggestion to look into how to administer it, be kind of proficient at that. Some people are doing that as, as a community outreach. They're learning how to administer Narcan and they're they're going around the areas of town where homelessness is abundant and where the drugs are. And helping people who overdose, which I think is great. Mm. It's very sad. It is very sad. To talk about the kids overdosing or somebody overdosing and taking it for the first time, you know, an outcome or I guess a 
a natural outcome slash consequence of the drug demand in this country and moving from going from one substance to a progressively stronger substance and so on and so on and so on is you're going to have these uh, drug cartels putting it into pills that are made that are synthetic copies of prescription pills and unfortunately the amount of fentanyl that goes into each one can vary and as we mentioned earlier two milligrams is lethal and so just a slight variance can cause that lethal dose and so you're playing a roulette where if you're taking a pill that is illegally obtained you really don't know like kids middle school high school so you've got Let's say you got a middle schooler who's like, oh, I want to try Oxycontin because I hear it's great. So they go and they go to their buddy who's selling these pills. That person's got it from their drug dealer and so on. They take this pill thinking, okay. And then bam, they're dead. There's like It's like a whole new ball game from when we were growing up. I mean, sure, there were drugs. There's been drugs forever. Right. Um, and surely, I'm sure there were drugs that you take once and you could lose your life. But this just seems like the stakes are so much higher for kids than they were for us. Especially since this is being mixed in with other drugs, you know, to the buyer, unbeknownst to the buyer. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it's different today than it was when we were younger? Like, what is going on in young people's minds and everybody's mind where where kids are taking fentanyl like it's becoming a norm for kids to be taking heroin fentanyl and other stuff aside from depravity you mean sure i mean there's an increased desire to avoid pain at all costs like you were saying mm. that we mm -hmm. just think about pain differently I feel like in previous generations, pain was a pathway to something. Like in order to get to a goal, it was kind of understood that there was kind of some pain to get there. Mm. And because we have instant gratification, I don't feel like that's really valued anymore. Like grit and hard work is becoming less popular. And people are very uncomfortable with discomfort. People don't know what to do with physical pain, mental and emotional pain. They want to avoid it at all costs. They want to run away from it. They want to, and, well, and we also have a world where it's increasingly, um, where what's available for people is that they're able to escape from reality. Mm -hmm. They can get into social media. They can get into video games. They can get into porn. They can get into all these things that aren't real, that are ways for them to move away from pain and towards fleeting pleasure, because all of these things um, work and play off of the dopamine receptors in the brain. And so it's, you know, people are just wanting pleasure and avoiding pain. Wow. Very well said. I was thinking... Exactly the same thing. <laughs> word for word. <laughs> no. But I want to talk about, I want to kind of delve into that a little bit. Back when you and I were growing up, 
way back when because we're 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 now way, way back, we're, we're, back. We are middle aged. In a, a time like a, period known as the 1980s. 1900s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, way back in the 1900s. We're in the 19th century. Is where, yeah. No, that's the 20th century. Oh, yeah, 20th century. Well, Come on, get it right. Get it right. <laughs> it's confusing. It is. You know, when I was in high school, and I, I grew up in a big city. Well, it wasn't that big at the time, but it's big now. But it, it, I grew up in the city. You didn't. Well, I grew up in the city. It was a city of 700 people. That's a town. Town. It's <laughs> a town. I grew up, grew up in a city compared to you is big. And in high school, well, even in middle school, in middle school, drugs were not a big thing. Like people weren't doing a bunch of drugs. The, the only drug people were doing that I can remember was pot. And pot was different back then. Now there's like synthetic pot. Yeah, pot and... was different back then. And then in high school, that's where you start getting exposed to some other drugs. But only a few people were doing those types of things. And if you if they were, they would go off the rails. They were like the they were the anomaly. They were the anomaly. They they were not the norm. And kids let me hold on real quick. I know you want to say something. But <laughs> I'm about to say something. There were a few kids in our school who were diagnosed with something called ADHD or ADD. And they were taking a drug called Ritalin or something similar to that a scheduled class um, meth, you know, a legalized meth they were taking. But they were very few and far between. There was not very many who were doing that. So the, the there was a stigma around taking drugs, at least as far as I remember, like taking a prescription drug for anything. There was like a stigma around it. There was also a stigma around mental illness and the need for that. True, so there was. There that, was a stigma that around that too. too. So that's that's a component. But it's interesting that in the city, that's what your experience was. Because in the country, I never knew nothing about no drugs till <laughs> I was in college, except in alcohol, which I was very familiar with. And that was everywhere where I yeah. grew up. But drugs, no, that was college. Not even Ritalin, like you're saying, that came later. Like, y'all were progressive here we in were the pretty, city. Yeah, well, I'm not going to name our city. but Let me, let me just say. <laughs> pot was a huge thing. Most people smoked pot. Um so it was it, it was definitely socially acceptable back then amongst the youth. Which is so wild because now it's so socially acceptable, so much so that when we go for a walk, we, we smell, smell it, it like yeah. almost every time. And it's not legal in our state yet. No. It's just a matter of time. But what wasn't acceptable were hard drugs like heroin and cocaine. Um, one drug that was acceptable, but only on rare occasions well two drugs that were acceptable but on rare occasions within i guess within the populace were were some type of lsd or uh ecstasy like hallucinogenic drugs well ecstasy is not a hallucinogen not no it's like an opioid and it was synthetic it was not real mdma but those two were accepted only if you were doing it Maybe once a year at like a rave or some kind of party. Oh my gosh, remember raves? Yeah. Do they have those anymore? And so like within my circle of friends who are, I would say, potheads, somebody who was doing... What were doing, you doing hanging out with a circle of potheads? We're, we, we, look, we're... Okay, let me get back to... <laughs> let's stay on topic. So they would... We, we didn't think it was good for somebody to use those other drugs like ecstasy or 
LSD very often. Like, so if somebody was, they were kind of like ostracized from our group. Like, we don't want any part of that. You're, you're a, you know, Raya. Yeah. Standards of what's acceptable. You're have a changed. druggie. Yeah. Let's go over here and smoke our pot, but you're a druggie, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's that type of deal. Oh man. So today it's completely different. Now you kind of hit on it and I want to talk about it a little bit more. First, there's this, we have an avoidance to pain. Now, where did that come from? That came from a lot of places. Like if we really want to delve into it, that'd be maybe multiple episodes long for us to really go into the psychoanalytics of why we as a society are avoiding pain at all costs. And America is different than some of the rest of the world. We might be similar to Canada and Australia, but we are different in how we view pain from anywhere else. And the stats would show that because of our prescription usage. It's wild. I mean, the amount of, I mean, just when you said that, the first thing that came to my head was the amount of antibiotics that could prescribe to people here versus let's say in Europe. If yeah. a child has an ear infection in Europe, they do not prescribe an antibiotic most of the time. Right. And here it's assumed that you're just gonna take an antibiotic. I mean, the same thing goes for things like strep throat or right. and on and on and on. Like it's just, um, yeah, it's very interesting. Maybe if we were living in the 1900s, that would be a good idea, but we're not. We're living in the modern world where we are. We're living after the year 2000. Yeah, I mean, we've, we're living really after the year 1900. Like we're, we're living in a world where we have a lot of, um, we have a great handle on how to, on what's the word I'm looking for, on um cleanliness what's the hygiene hygiene <laughs> yeah we have a great handle on that we got hygiene especially after covid boy do we got hygiene Woo! Woo! Boy, we're less likely to develop we're it's less likely for our illness to develop into something worse because of our hygiene right so anyway somehow we have gone from using some of these tools in the medical world as a necessity to now it's just standard protocol and I think that that cultivates this mindset in the populace of this is just what we do. And so medication is just normal. And so we, we're very used to it. Whereas back in high school, if you were taking medicine for ADD, it was very rare. Now we're giving it to five-year-olds. It's so interesting that a symptom is a sign, like the word, I don't know if it's the word symptom or the word that it derived from means sign. So a symptom is a sign of a problem. The symptom itself is not the problem. Right. So often what I see in my experience in our medical model is that the symptom is the problem and we're treating the symptoms and we're not even actually looking at what is the problem. And I find that very fascinating. And I, in my own work, I work with people in a different modality in an alternative modality and I work with the problem and it's so interesting that I see for example since we're talking about pain I have a client with fibromyalgia who started coming to me with pain that was 7 out of 10 talking about your 1 to mm-hmm. 10 scale yep. <laughs> I use it too 7 out of 10 every day every day that was her life and working with me with no pharmaceuticals or medications of any kind just doing this alternative modality over time, less than a year, six to nine months, her pain became zero out of 10 and has been consistently for months. So when you address the problem, 
versus the symptom, often things like pain reduce. The symptoms reduce or go away. It's, it's just an interesting dichotomy of the model that we have versus you know other models. Okay, so let's talk about that for a little bit because you, what you were saying got me thinking about waiting and being patient. So Yeah, six months. If you can take a pill and your pain can go away in six minutes versus you have to wait six months, that's a big difference. There's a big difference. We've turned into a society, from what I can see, we've turned into a society where we are choosing to take the dollar now rather than the $100 a week from now. Yes. And so here's what I'm seeing. Back when we were young whippersnappers, we had to wait for a lot of things. So the internet was still new, if not even invented yet, back when, depending on the time, depending on what age we were. That was like before Al Gore invented it. Yeah, exactly. We would have to use a telephone to call somebody. If they weren't rich, they didn't have call waiting. And if they didn't have call waiting and somebody else was online, you had to wait for them to get off. And you just didn't know. Like you couldn't text them. You couldn't Mm-mm. communicate with them in any other way. So you were in this unknown period of time going... When can I talk to my friend? You had to wait. And you had to wait for your song to come on the radio. Yes. And if you were fortunate enough to own the record or the cassette tape, let's just say cassette tape, right. you had to like forward to the exact point in the tape where your song, the song you wanted to listen to oh, right. was. And you couldn't just <laughs> click to the track, yeah. Oh, dear. Well, you can do that with a record. You can put it on Well, right, right. But, but still. That's why I went with the cassette tape. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> And a video too, like a we didn't have DVD. We had VHS. You had, yeah, to, you rewind, had to rewind. You had to fast it, forward. Yeah. Always, had, it took a couple minutes to rewind. You had to be kind and rewind. And then, like, if I hope you, you were kind. I was always. You worked kind. at a movie. I worked store. at a video store. Yeah, so you know all about. I know patients. all about it. So we we used to have to call a number, like a local number, to get the movie show times. Ugh. And you had press to press one. Yeah, you had four. to wait. You had to, first. You had to press your number for the theater you were going to go to. Then you had to wait for all of them to go through. So that's what, we, that's what we're used to. We're used to that. And then when the internet came, waiting for a website to load up, you had to wait. You had to wait to log on. Everything was slow. And so we have this, oh, this need for more efficiency, things to be faster. And so you start, what? Well, I'm just thinking, yeah. I mean, even since COVID, like remember back before COVID when people had to go to the grocery store and wait in line to buy your groceries? Right. Now? You just pay a little extra and you can have them delivered. Or when you had to like actually go pick up your food from a restaurant instead of having Favor bring it to you or Uber yeah. Eats or whoever it is right. that brings it to you these days. Right. Like Remember those things? You remember where you could actually go to the grocery store and talk to the cashier and they were in charge of whether or not of how you pay because you have to give them your card. They'd have to swipe it and do all that. But now you do it. And so you're kind of facing down not looking at them while you're making your payment. Oh, come on. There's not even cashiers anymore. It's like self-checkout. Right. So you... I okay, mean, wait. You <laughs> were like totally sounding really old. Hold remember, on. remember when we had wooden nickels? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember? You remember buffalo nickels? You remember back in the day? We, oh, boy. <laughs> when we rode on slates? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. This is what happens in middle age, listeners. This is what happens. <laughs> so I'm seeing, <clears throat> to get back to talking about this evolution of how we see the world. 
Sure. And pain specifically. And pain specifically. Someone today experiences pain, whether it be a physical pain or emotional pain. Those are the two main revenue generators for pharmaceutical companies because you've got either depression pills or you've got pain pills. And so that is the standard model of care that we have. And so we're giving that. And so that's what people are used to. So in my opinion, of course, where is that going to ultimately lead to? We have growing up, there was this stigma about illegal drugs. Pot is bad. These other drugs are bad. And you have the D.A.R.E. program. Everybody's telling you this is bad. So what is a generation supposed to do when they're being told by the government and the governmental agencies, these illegal substances that alter your mind in these ways are bad, but then you go to a doctor and the doctor says, oh, you're not feeling well? You're feeling depressed? Here, take this pill that's going to alter your mind and make you feel better. It's going to get you high, essentially. Well, everybody's going to feel good when they're high. Until they don't. Until they don't. And so there's, there's, a dis, there's like a dissonance there. There's a disconnect in the person's brain, even if they're not thinking about it. Like, wait a minute. I was told getting high is wrong. Like, it's not something I should be looking at, like look, going after to fix something. It should be done recreationally and responsibly. You're wanting me to take this pill daily to ignore this pain that mm. I'm feeling, this depression, this sadness. And then you've got, okay, you've got shoulder injury going in, and they're like, okay, you've got to do this surgery, you got this shoulder injury, how's your pain? Yeah, well, Tylenol isn't really helping. Instead of being, you're just going to have to deal with it, take some more Tylenol, take this pill, and it'll help you. And I can understand the logic behind it. I can understand the, the intention of, we just got to get you feeling good, and then you'll be fine after that. You're not going to want this pill anymore. Well, and then there also are valid, like there's complex chronic pain. There are valid pain conditions that don't fall within the normal mm -hmm. realm of what we're talking about. Right, and that's where these types of pain management solutions from the pharmaceutical industry can be very valuable. They can be. It's interesting, though, that when you're talking about how how much more common it is, these are like the go-to things for you know anxiety and depression or for physical pain, and we have access to ways to reduce or eliminate pain, but it's just a Band-Aid. And therefore, we also have more suicide, more discontent, more like it's not helping us to live better, to flourish, to have well-being at all. Yeah, you just nailed it. I was, that was one thing I wanted to say is we're not. We're not doing well. Like as a, as a country, as a whole, as a people... We're not happier. We're not more content with life. And so we're seeking out various, all means and manners of pleasure in order to fill us in some way. And I don't think that's going very well. I don't think the you know, long-term effects or outcome is very beneficial for any of us. So what's a great resource that we can refer our listeners to to help them shift their paradigm around a new way of thinking about pain? I don't know. Other than perhaps the Bible? Other, well, 
Right. I, to me, that's the best, that's the best resource, but maybe that's triggering for some people. Maybe they don't want to do that first. So here, let's, let me just summarize it in a nutshell. I feel like, and maybe you agree that in order for us to curb the drug problem, and in my opinion, the drug problem encompasses both legal and illegal drugs. I would agree. In order to get a handle on that, we have to, in order to, in order to reinvent our thinking about it, we have to reframe our belief and our idea about pain because we have to be able to sit with it. We have to be able to feel it. And we have to be able to know how to manage it in a healthy way that doesn't lead to these unhealthy things. Sure. Now, I'm just going to say, a few months ago, I hurt my back because I'm middle-aged. And I just coughed wrong and it happened. (laughs) (laughs) And I was in extreme pain for a long time. I got sciatica. I was in extreme pain. For days and days. Yeah. For about a week, I went, I, I tried to manage, I tried to not take anything for that pain because I didn't want to have to take any kind of pill Even. other than, other than like a leave. I was taking a leave, but sure. Just wasn't touching it. Oh man. Even with nothing. no sleep. But I couldn't sleep. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't sleep because of it. So I went like a week with barely any sleep. I was going nuts. I was going crazy. You remember that? Like I, I was, I was, it was hard. I was losing my mind and I was like, I need something. And at that point I was like, okay, I need some kind of pain, med- like some kind of pain management and breathing wasn't working. Like you were trying to give me some great breathing things and it was working to a point, to a point. So I was very grateful for that pharmaceutical that I was able to get and take under specific management mm-hmm. with, you know, but so there was a, a, a valid Place. Place for it. And that I am grateful for. Yes. Um, but we do need to reevaluate how we think of pain, how we view pain. And so nothing is going to change. No law we're going to make. No law we're going to create. No border wall we're going to put up. Nothing that we're going to do that is a Band-Aid solution is going to address the problem. Right. And there are so many, many tools for managing pain that don't involve pharmaceuticals, legal or illegal drugs. There are so many tools that have to do with managing pain, physical pain, mental and emotional pain, that see that symptom as a sacred messenger to us and where the symptom itself is not the problem, it's a sign of a deeper problem, of a deeper problem. And I highly recommend for folks to to look into these things, whether it's a faith-based solution, a faith-based solution, whether it's mindfulness tools and techniques, or like you mentioned, breathing, like there's just so many things available. And yeah, reframing how we think about pain, how we think about discomfort. Um, There's a neuroscientist Andrew Huberman who's like real he's so popular he's right now. So hot right he's now. so hot right now. Anyway, who I don't know if he has anything specific on pain. He does have um stuff on addiction. Um but anyway, just like there's so much out there. 
that's available if you're really interested in in creating a shift in the way mm-hmm. that you view and reframing your idea and your posture towards pain. I just highly recommend looking into some of that. Right. And if you're somebody who's experiencing pain and you're looking for a means to you know, reduce or eliminate that pain and you don't know what to do, well, our suggestion is, first of all, you're not alone. Yeah, we need to normalize pain. Pain means you're human and you're not a robot and that's a good thing in that's my That's a book. great thing. So you're not alone. Second, there's a community of people out there. There's communities all over the place that can be available for you to offer support and how to get out of that pain. So there's like, there's community support groups for whatever it is. Or how to manage it. Or how to manage it, yeah. One of the main soul factors of a person who has an addiction, it is rooted in this uh, trying to escape or avoid pain. Mm -hmm. One of those kinds of pain. That's how a person gets addicted, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more to it, but you can, if you just kind of boil it down in a nutshell, it's an avoidance of fear and pain that you're trying to avoid. Mm. And so you're, you're just like, this is how you start taking something that's addictive, and then you pass that event horizon, and you, there's no going back. You're just sort of stuck in this loop of an addictive it's cycle. It's a trap. So... There are resources out there. Are we going to include anything in the show notes? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to put the addictionguide.com website. Sure. It's very well put together. So I'll put that. I'll put some of the other websites from the government I used for some of the stats. I'll put that in the show notes. And then I'll just kind of maybe list out some helpful solutions to pain that we've come across. And, and maybe some encouraging words and this look out for us next time Ooh, encouraging words yeah maybe some encouraging words all right guys we're going to wrap up this episode thanks for listening as we discussed addiction and fentanyl specifically hope you enjoyed if you liked the show or think it's valuable please forward along to someone else you're welcome to support and contribute to our show through the website relinquishedpodcast.com and that's it for today that's right so join us next time as we respectfully agree to disagree that's right